2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, September 27th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi congressional leaders are speaking out as an impeachment inquiry gets underway in the House. Then, a weekend summit is working to address the role women play in the state's economy. And in this week's book club, the history of an iconic blues lounge is chronicled through photos in the book Poe Monkeys. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Some members of Mississippi's congressional delegation are speaking out about a House impeachment inquiry directed at President Donald Trump. The inquiry centers on a conversation the president had with the leader of Ukraine in which Trump mentions his political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden two Mississippi congressmen spoke with MPB News about the process. Republican Congressman Stephen Palazzo represents the 4th Congressional District. He spoke to MPB's Ezra Wall as a partial transcript of the conversation in question was just coming out.
0: First, I, I was kind of shocked. I thought Speaker Pelosi was smarter than that. And then uh, a certain sadness came over me that she would be placating, you know, a few far-left uh, individuals and doing something that I believe is, you know, kind of breaking the norms of Congress. Um, I wouldn't say it's unconstitutional, but she was calling for an impeachment uh, query uh, before she even read what she was going to be impeaching him for. And I think, uh, overall, they're just trying to throw this huge cast net. It's kind of like, you know, we, we you know when we're, you know... Um, you know, throwing net, you know, bait casting nets for uh, bait on the Gulf Coast. You never really know what you're going to catch and pull in, and that's kind of looks to be their approach. But the reason I'm sad is because they're they're putting politics ahead of the American people. We have an opioid crisis. We have a border crisis. We have, you know, there's there's countries that are trying to uh, weaken us from you know militarily. Uh, we have, uh, you, know, you know, people are still trafficking humans, but yet they're so fixated on this president, and and I, c- I can't explain why. I'm not going to pretend to know the reasons they hate him, but they they just don't want to govern. They just they're they're just trying to go after this president, and I believe to set themselves up for the 2020 election.
1: The uh, conversation in question having to do with the uh, president of Ukraine, President Zelensky of the Ukraine would you consider it to be proper for a president of the united states to ask a foreign government to look into his political uh, opponents or political adversaries
0: if there's people in america that have you know committed corruptal you know corruption uh, in a foreign country and two heads of state i don't see any reason why they would not talk about that now uh, the politically cuz one of his opponent uh, you know that's that's to be determined but i haven't seen the context. I haven't been able to read it for myself. I'm just picking up bits and pieces from, you know, what I've seen on the news
1: and what I've heard. So, as as the proceedings in the in the House go forward, uh, I think what I what I understand is there there have to be various uh, uh, committee reports on whatever investigations happen, and then the whole House would have the opportunity on whether to. Uh, impeach the president, and then the trial portion of it would go over to the Senate. So, do you envision the House uh, having enough enough votes to uh, to actually call for impeaching the president? You mentioned that that your feeling was that the Speaker might have been placating only a few members of her party.
0: Yeah, well, no, no. I mean, I, I think th- I think the crazies to the left have taken them pretty pretty far left, and people are are afraid to go against. Of this, I, th- I think, it's a great rallying point they're using, but th- this is pure politics. This has nothing to do with people. It has nothing to do with policy. It has nothing to do with the rule of law. It's kind of laughable that they're that you know. It's just I think this is the politics of personality, and they don't like this man. They don't like that he loves America. That he's standing firm, standing tough. You know, doing things that are non-traditional. Um, but obviously, the status quo for either party has not been working. And that scares, that scares Democrats, and it also scares um, establishment uh, Republicans. But, you know, our job is to weigh the evidence and see where the evidence goes. So if there's something that becomes, uh, you know, that interesting, you know, we're, we're going to ask the tough questions. We, our job is to to, it's to do it right. The American people are not talking about this. They oppose impeaching a sitting president. This is not something that you, you know, I mean, this is, this is playing with dynamite. Uh, And but yet they just seem reckless and careless and they just don't care.
2: Congressman Stephen Palazzo represents South Mississippi in the U.S. House of Representatives. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson chairs the House Homeland Security Committee. He talked with our Ezra Wall just before yesterday's committee testimony from acting National Intelligence Director Joseph McGuire.
3: A lot of things have gone on over the last uh, two and a half years that caused me great concern. I have had the good fortune of uh serving under a number of presidents, but this administration has taken uh, the office of the presidency to a level that I haven't seen uh in my tenure here in washington uh The overt use of uh uh public influence for private gain uh causes me great concern lowering the standards of discourse in the office uh, causes me concern. Uh, And with this recent revelation about uh, what had gone on in the Ukraine and the conversation and ultimate release of uh, a partial transcript of that conversation, uh, says that uh, there are significant issues that, at best, Should be reviewed. So, as a matter of national security, as a matter of uh, making sure that uh, the office or the presidency uh, is not being used for personal gain or political gain or political retribution to a potential uh, opponent. Uh, We have to look at
1: it. So the the, uh, transcript that you referenced, the partial transcript of the conversation, I think um, a lot of people were looking when they started talking about quid pro quo uh, for something obvious. Like, I'm I'm not an attorney, so I, I read the thing expecting perhaps to even see, if you do this, then I'll do this, or if you don't do this, then I'll do this thing, which isn't there. Uh, but is there uh, enough of a, of a sort of suggestion or, or reading between the lines? Is that where the quid pro quo comes in?
3: Well, I think uh, the transcript coupled with uh, other facts, for instance, the withholding of uh, uh, financial resources to Ukraine occurred before the conversation. Uh, the reference to involving the attorney general in Uh, coming up with information pertaining to any potential investigation. And so uh, it's the totality of what we're looking at uh, that's very disconcerting uh, on my part, to the point that I am absolutely uh, of the opinion that Congress has to uh, move forward Uh, the, the whistleblower statutes uh, quite clear. Uh, it says uh, once a complaint goes to the IG uh, and if the IG finds, and that's the Inspector General, finds reason or merit in the complaint, you have to make that referral to the House Intelligence Committee. It doesn't say may; it says shall. So we are We'll see what happens. Uh, part of what we have to do uh, is get all the facts. They'll start talking to the witnesses, as you know, going forward. And I look forward to uh, the ultimate uh, House Intelligence Committee and some of the other committees' findings to see what's next.
1: I talked to uh, your colleague, uh, Congressman Palazzo, yesterday, and he was—he thought it was—it was his estimation that uh, Speaker Pelosi, in beginning these proceedings, was uh, doing so under the pressure of, of, of a, a fairly extreme faction of your party in the House. What, what's your assessment of that?
3: A party is made up of uh, philosophies. Uh, when I saw seven uh, military veterans uh, come out in an op-ed in the Washington Post, Saying, based on their review of the Ukrainian situation, it is time to move forward uh, with an impeachment inquiry. Is that you're uh,
1: referring I, to the op ed from the several freshman congressmen who are seen as, as more conservative among Democrats?
3: Absolutely, and all who have either military or intelligence backgrounds. These were not just ordinary people. Uh, in the sense of, of members of Congress. These were people uh, who had worked for the FBI, who had worked, worked for CIA, who had worked for the Department of Defense, uh, who had not taken a position previously. So it was, uh, I think, their involvement in saying we need to, at a minimum, go forward with the impeachment inquiry uh, that became... Uh, I think, enough of a comfort level for the speaker to move forward.
1: Congressman Benny Thompson represents Mississippi's uh, third district in the United States House of Representatives. Congressman Thompson, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for having
2: me. Coming up, a weekend summit is working to address the role women play in the state's economy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new report is bringing attention to the economic hardship faced by many women in Mississippi. Women Driving Change, a Pathway to a Better Mississippi, is a new report from the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable and the National Women's Law Center. It shows that seven out of ten low-wage workers in the state are women. In particular, black women are the largest group of women working low-wage jobs. We're joined by Fatima Goss-Graves of the National Women's Law Center and Cassandra Welchlin of the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. Graves starts off by talking about their findings. One
4: of the things that we realized very, very quickly is that the problems that women were facing in Mississippi were intense uh, and were serious and were not getting the attention they need, but also the leadership of women in Mississippi to actually transform the lives of families in this state was powerful. And so this report highlights all of that. It highlights not only the range of challenges and concerns that Mississippi women are facing, but also concrete solutions that grow out of organizing and leadership in the state.
2: Cassandra, tell us some of the specifics about the economic status of women in Mississippi.
4: So what we know, you know, in Mississippi is that we have some of the um, highest poverty rates um here in Mississippi. Um, uh, we also know that two thirds of our minimum wage workers, two two thirds of the minimum wage workers in the state of Mississippi, you know are women. Um, and we know that black women make up a lot of those uh, a lot of that percentages that's there. Um, uh, we also know that we have the largest wage gap um in the country and the only state in the country, um, that do not have protections for, um, we don't have equal pay law. And so, um, and, and that's pretty, um, pretty telling. Um, we're talking about particularly for black women in the state of Mississippi, um, over the course of the 40, 40 years of their career, they would have lost about $800,000. Um, that's, pretty significant. So we're talking about women who um, need access to child care, women who needing access to um, housing. Um, she's losing those kinds of wages. Um, we're also talking about health care. Um, Mississippi um, did not expand, you know, Medicaid. And so we have the largest, um, about 140, um, 145, 45,000 women, including Over 20,000 black women fall in in, in the state's Um, coverage gap that did not qualify for traditional Medicaid. Let me stop you for a second Mm because I want to go back
2: to that so many women are in minimum wage jobs. Are these, do they tend to be single mother households as well working in minimum wage jobs? Absolutely. What is the barrier from keeping minimum wage workers into better jobs, better paying jobs.
4: So what we have, what we know is that um, so many of these women are um, segregated um, in these in um, non traditional jobs. So what that means, it doesn't it doesn't matter what her educational level is. It doesn't matter um, what occupation she's in um her her wages are not what they need to be and so her being segregating in these jobs such as you know um you know cosmetology jobs you know teaching jobs those kinds of things um if she would get into these non traditional jobs that men have such as construction such as truck driving school, um truck driving jobs then she will have a better opportunity to increase her wages so that she'll be able to take care of her family. So that's one thing. The other thing um, that we know is a barrier is really, you know, race and gender. If we can really be honest about that, Um particularly for black women, um black women um, are the stereotypes that exist, you know, when it comes to you know, these women, you know, making higher wages and just a stereotype of being a woman. And so, you know, are her wages are important as a man's wage. And we've heard that conversation over and over again where employers say that. And so you have those kinds of things that continue to make um, those are some of the barriers to that.
2: What are the most restrictive barriers to success that women face?
4: The restrictive barriers really is around, you know, our wages and, um, You know, women need income. I mean, they need higher wages in order to just take care of their families. And we know that this is not just a family issue. This is a business issue. This is a community issue because we know that women, um, as you talk about, um, you know, women, they are the breadwinners or the co-breadwinners of their families. And so if they are economically secure, then they are driving um, the economy through their wages and really carrying the, the um, Mississippi's economy. Also, some of the other things that that are important too is workplace practices. One of the things that we lift up in this report is that we need businesses um, and we need laws to protect pregnant workers. Um, so we need pregnancy accommodations for our um, our moms. On these jobs, and what that looks like is making special accommodations for them. Well,
2: what about childcare? Because that's another that one that can be expensive Absolutely. for a mom. So,
4: yes, I'm going there as well. Yeah, so childcare um, really lifted up in this report, and thanks to the Mississippi Low Income Childcare Initiative also for contributing to this. Um, childcare is a is a big one. Fatima Goss-Graves is the CEO of the National
2: Women's Law Center, and Cassandra Welchlin is the co director of the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. Thank you both very much for being with us.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: If this information is useful to you and you'd like more time to learn about it, you may be interested in a discussion happening tomorrow. It's the Mississippi Women's Economic Security Policy Summit. It's happening tomorrow, starting at 9 a.m. at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org/slash cartag. We'll see you on the road. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Along a dirt road surrounded by farmland in the Mississippi Delta is a place that is a mecca for blues fans. This little shack-like lounge welcomed music lovers for more than 50 years before closing in 2016. In the book Poe Monkeys, Portrait of a Juke Joint, photographer Will Jacks shares more than 70 black and white photos that illustrate why Poe Monkeys was a mandatory stop on a blues pilgrimage.
5: Poe Monkeys is was a juke joint outside of Marigold, Mississippi. It was run by Willie C. Berry. It was started sometime in the early sixties. Even Willie couldn't tell you an exact date of when it started. Uh, like most juke joints, it was kind of born out of a desire to create a space where the farm laborers could gather and let off some steam. And it just progressed that way all the way up until Willie's death in twenty sixteen. Over the years, particularly around 98, 99, 2000, Pro Monkeys became a very key component of the state of Mississippi's marketing of the blues as an economic base, and it succeeded in doing so.
2: I went on Google Maps to find the building, Mm -hmm. and there's this shack-like building in -hmm. the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere. And you said farmhands would go, which makes Mm -hmm. sense because it's surrounded by farmland. What was the transference between farmhands to a very wide audience, black and white and young and old? Right.
5: Well, I think there were a couple of things. It starts with Willie Seabury. Willie was just magnetic, and people enjoyed being around him. And he also created a space that was comfortable for all walks of, of people. And that was true even in the 60s and 70s before all of this tourism stuff even even began. So there was always a smattering of a diverse clientele that would come hang out at Willie's. And then in the late 90s, you had this perfect mix of his personality, of the locals that continued to be patrons of this space from its beginning. They were there in the end as well, which is really unique as we began to have more and more, particularly European tourists come. You see a lot of spaces in the Delta that are filled with tourists and not with locals. It's usually one or the other, not always, but usually. And Poe Monkeys was never like that. It was always grounded with the locals who followed Willie's lead of being welcoming and sharing their stories with any guests that may show up from other places.
2: One of my favorite photos, which is a little strange maybe, are all of these outlets that are hanging with extension Mm -hmm. cords and plugs, and you think this is a fire hazard waiting to happen. Sure. But it shows, I don't know, how much activity was going on as evidenced by all the things that were plugged into these several power strips.
5: And that'll never happen again, right? That's one of the reasons when people, when I hear people comment, oh, it needs to reopen. And I'm not sure what needs to happen out there. But one of the things I am certain of is that the only reason you were able to have an electrical system like that was because Willie Seabury opened this club in the early 60s when there were few regulations and guidelines when there, and even if there were the property of uh, juke joints of black farm laborers was not something that was paid as much attention to. And that carried forward as long as Willie was involved. And some of those things will never happen again in that way. So there are all these wonderful things about the space, that are born out of these really tragic things. I hope that that's part of what people are able to get as they really examine the book, is that, wow, this will never exist again.
2: Will Jax is the photographer. The book is called Poe Monkey's Portrait of a Juke Joint. Will is a program manager for the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area. Will, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thank you. I really appreciate it.